Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. If you've been listening to us the last couple of weeks, you know that we are here in season four and we are diving into the deep end of trauma and all of the aspects of trauma. And um, as Kurt has said so eloquently, we are our goal is not necessarily trauma, but our goal is hope, um, which is you know where we're headed, the hope and beauty. Uh, but today could get a little rough for some of us, and uh, we want to acknowledge that right off the bat. We are going to be talking about the destructive power of sexual trauma today. And Kurt, you might want to start with some sort of uh, word of encouragement or uh, here before we even dive in. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I I want to acknowledge that you know, as two men, um, we are far less likely to have experienced sexual trauma just because of our gender. And so, I want to acknowledge that that I uh, I'm aware that I don't know what it means, especially to be a female, but it doesn't, I mean, there are plenty of men who've also been sexually mistreated. And so I, I want to acknowledge that, uh, there are elements of this that I don't know personally, but over the course of 30 years of doing the work that I do, uh, have seen, uh, many, many people whose lives, have really been uh, painfully traumatized by being sexually mistreated. And so I, I just want to acknowledge that this is not easy, but also to come back and say that we really, uh, at the end of the day, we are here to be a voice of hope. We are here to be a voice of confidence and comfort. Uh, would also just want to reiterate that we aren't, uh, this is not a substitute for professional counseling or for, or for psychotherapy. And so we wouldn't want anyone to think that just by listening to this, that the problems are going to be solved or they're going to get all the questions answered that they may have. We also want to acknowledge that in the course of our conversation today that you, uh, you in our audience, you might find yourselves feeling things or remembering things that can even feel overwhelming. And so we're going to, we'll have two or three recommended things for you to do at the end of our time. And then there's one resource that we'll come back to at the end as well that I want to just recommend here at the outset, and we'll come back to it, is my friend and also colleague Dan Allender. He's a psychologist uh, that works on the West Coast, and he's written a number of different pieces. He does a ton of work in this area, but he he wrote a book called Healing the Wounded Heart uh, that came out, I think, in 2016 or 2017. It's actually 25 years after he had written uh, the first version of this, um, The Wounded Heart, and it's a reprise of this and kind of like kind of looking back and saying, how has any of this topic changed? And it's a really beautifully done piece uh, that's practical and hopeful. And so uh, we'll come back to that again. I want to start with a story that uh, we've told before on this podcast in other episodes. Um, you know, back when we were talking about in our, in our previous season, season three in The Soul of Desire, and it's a story of a young woman named Tara. And... Uh, Tara came to me when she was in her 30s, and she's married with children, and uh, she was coming to me then because uh, she was profoundly anxious and had become depressed again, but her story didn't begin when she was in her 30s. Her story really began when she was in middle school and high school, where she had been summarily groomed by 
her youth group leader, who was a, an associate there at the church where she attended. And the youth group leader over a series of months had groomed her. And then by the time she was in high school, uh, was having sex with her. This was kept, you know, this was kept quiet from anyone. And uh, it wasn't until she went, went off to college and her life started to fall apart. She wasn't really able to do her work. And she went to see a counselor. And it was then that uh, all this story started to come out after she had left. And by that time, there had been other people at the church, other, other, other young women who had started to come forward and talk about this. The church took action immediately, and they, you know, they dismissed this young pastor. He moved on. What was not done was uh, they, didn't, they didn't involve the, the criminal justice system, which um, would have uh, been a, an, an additional proper, appropriate thing to do, but right. they didn't do that. And, um, but that was, and, but she, she went on to, uh, Tara went on to continue to do hard work in her psychotherapy in college and then graduated from college and was doing well. She met a young guy who himself had had a pornography addiction, uh, in his younger years, uh, but who had become a person of faith. He came, Jesus found him, he surrendered to Jesus and began to do some really hard work himself on this pornography addiction. And by the time he met Tara, was well into his sobriety and recovery, and they were both doing a lot of really good hard work. They got married, had three kids. When she came to see me, it was about uh, just a few months after two things had happened. One was that her husband had relapsed and was beginning to involve himself in pornography again. Uh, And the other thing then that happened was that about that same time, she got wind from a friend who had heard that this former youth pastor who had taken advantage of her somehow had made his way to another church in another part of the country where he had been an executive pastor and news had come out that he once again was sexually manipulating and mistreating women in the church. You know, uh, we have to wonder, like, how... How do we do this as human beings? Like, yeah. uh, like, and I, I, I didn't, I didn't have words for her. And the whole notion of that something this profoundly painful and shattering took place is one thing, but that it took place in the context of the very place where one would expect to go for hope and healing. That you know, in the context of the church, and then in the context of your marriage, these two places that many of us often expect to be seen, soothed, safe, secure as we've talked about before, is what makes it all the more painful and unnerving to our neurobiological systems. And so I think one of the things, I, I want us to hold Tara's story uh, honorably. I want to I hold it with, with gentleness uh, to recognize that, that, you know, she didn't have to come for help. She could have just thrown the towel in, and there are many people who have, but she had there was enough of her that wanted life to be different, not just the absence of symptoms, but wanted life to be different, where in which she saw, she sought help. And so in the course of our work together, we started to, to explore not just what was taking place for her in the here and now, but what are some of the things that led up to that, and how are some ways that we could actually help her find hope and confidence going forward. And the story does end well, both for her and her husband, but not without a lot of really, really hard work. And that's the thing that, 
you know, we we say what we've what we've said before is that trauma, especially sexual trauma, shatters not just my experience, not just shatters my sense of what I feel and sense and image and think, but it also shatters very profoundly my capacity to perceive my experience. So it's not just that the lens on my camera now sees a landscape that is all broken up. The lens itself is fractured such that I can't but help see the landscape as fractured itself. And so I want to talk a little bit about, first of all, like what is it about sexuality in general that makes it so particular? All kinds of traumas that take place, you know, as you and I, um, our recording today, we know that there are traumas taking place on the world stage uh, that are painful and hard, and we'll we'll come to that at some point in another episode. But I mean, what makes sex so unique in this regard? And this is the so I'd, I'd like for us to begin at the beginning in this regard that we long for intimacy. I mean, this is there, there's no greater human longing but intimacy, and it's what we were made for, and we long for intimacy in a context of sexuality wherein which there's this inherent power of creativity and almost nuclear capacity in its potency. I mean, there's nothing we as humans do that is more powerfully creative than to create children, to conceive and bear children. There's nothing more powerfully creative that we do. And we, you know, we, we were given this gift. We weren't, we can't just make this happen whenever we want to. Like the very act of sex is a vulnerable act. But even if you want to conceive children, like you can't guarantee or make it happen. I can't manipulate that in the same way that I can manipulate, you know, a screwdriver, you know, turning a screw into a piece of wood. Like I have much more control. I I can't guarantee that those kinds of things can happen. And so there's the longing and the intimacy and the creative power and the vulnerability, the role of vulnerability in all this, right? It's this sense that I have agency, but it's incomplete. Like there's a certain act of like, I want to be involved sexually with someone, but I'm going to have to, I I might have agency that I'm going to initiate sex or I'm going to allow someone to have sex with me. I'm going to have agency, but there's also incomplete agency. I don't know what this is going to create for me. I don't know where all this is going to go. And so we have this part of our body as well that is so fragile and in need of protection that is the very part and that is the most powerful creative thing that we have in many respects. And so in this regard, it can be both a reminder of life and death, our sexuality, a reminder of both life and death. There is this certain sense of fragility that is brought together with the power that we carry with it, which is why, you know, I use this, this metaphor of nuclear energy, nuclear power. It's you, you can't, you know, you just can't, you know, carry plutonium around in your hip pocket. Yeah. You have to have it contained in a particular place, but when it is, it has the capacity for, you know, bringing energy to entire cities. This is the difference between a handshake and intercourse or a handshake and someone physically touching us, you know, touching us in our, in our, 
our erogenous zones, like these, these places of our bodies, whether it's in our genitals or our breasts or wherever, this, this notion that this intimacy with this intention of connecting in this way is both a thing of great fragility, great delicacy, and great power. If you just shake somebody's hand and then they go off and you never see them again, you won't think a thing of it. You can't say that about, an, about a sexual encounter. And so in God's design, there is this sense in which if we're going to have a sexual encounter, it wants, God necessarily wants to have it be contained within a, a particular place, a particular structure. We call that marriage, this structure that creates safety so that both parties can be seen, soothed, safe, secure in that space. But the other thing that's important to know like that's that's kind of like the role of, of sexuality and why why it is so much more potent in its destructive power. I, I tell people, you know, it's the difference between a red wagon and a mainframe computer that's you know running the power plant. If 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 my mainframe, you know, if my red wagon breaks an axle, I take it to my local welder and they fix it and we do, we just keep going. But you know, you have a mainframe computer that goes down and you get Chernobyl. I mean, these, these kinds of things, so it's, it's a far more delicate thing that has to be cared for in a, in a far different way. But the other thing that we have to keep in mind, like that's, that's, a, that's a, like a 10,000-foot you know, flyby of right. our sexuality. But the other thing that we have to keep in mind is that the biblical narrative would tell us that we don't live in a neutral universe. You know, I've been uh, rereading C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, and this thing's just eating my lunch. Just it's it's an unbelievable set of three stories, yeah. and of course one of the most powerful things that comes right off the page is that evil exists, and it intends to devour us, and it will take those things that are most beautiful and most delicate, and turn them into its most destructive weapons. And this is how evil does all of its work with God's creation of beauty and goodness. Those things that are most delicate, most beautiful, most valuable are the things that evil will wield to traumatize us. That's what was happening to Tara. This is a young girl who trusted someone whose work and job was to care for her soul. And she felt loved and cared for. And there's more to that story because part of her journey didn't just begin with this sexual abuse. It began with a father who wasn't paying that much attention to his daughter's emotional welfare to begin with. And not that her father was ultimately responsible for this youth pastor's bad behavior. That's not the case at all. But there's a sense in which Tara didn't have the kind of emotional connection with a male figure that made it possible for her to to gravitate towards someone who really did care for her. And this is one of the things that we also learn about sexual abuse. It begins much further away from us than we suspect. This is how evil wields it. And what do I mean by that? Well, we talk about Genesis chapter 3. That, like, that feels like a long time ago with the curse. But we hear in the curse, God say to the woman, your husband will rule over you and you will have desire for him, this sense that he will master you, he will mistreat you, and your desire will be, your desire will be to undermine. Desire in this sense is, is, the, is the, the desire of devouring, the desire of undermining. This sense that this war between males and females, this war that we have 
like that involves our sexuality didn't begin yesterday. It's as ancient as we human beings are. The other thing we notice is that sexual abuse is, we, we like to say it's so far and yet so close. We don't recognize the way, for instance, that Madison Avenue contributes to this. You know, we, we, don't, we don't think that, uh, we, we, have, we have very little awareness of how, for instance, males uh, are trained to objectify females. We are trained to engage and see females not as persons, but as objects and bodies. And, and of course, we say this all the time. I don't know, you know we objectify. Yes, yeah, so yeah, but like we act, we're, we're actively being trained to do this. Like one example would be like Sports Illustrated's uh, swimsuit magazine episode. Like it's soft porn is what it is. I mean, I don't know who hasn't been willing to say that, but that's what it is. It's soft pornography. And there, at one level, there is this sense of beauty that is put on the pages. But like, there's, there's, like, it, it's no secret that this beauty is uh, created with a come hither kind of way of which sexuality is all over the place. And I'm trained to just see this as a picture on a magazine. I'm, I'm not, I'm not thinking about a particular person. And so it's distant from me. And so I can make I can much more easily objectify it, and therefore I'm not having to consider this as a real person. Well, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, Sports Illustrated knows what they're selling, and right. they know their audience. You don't see right. the the female equivalent of this flying off the shelves and being the number one seller of a magazine. There, you know, it's it's to say it's just a celebration of beauty would be you know a lie. That's not that's not. We know what we're talking about here, right? And I mean, again, this is this is how the the messaging and the abuse begins so subtly. And we think like, oh, well, that's not abuse. But you know, you know, speaking of pornography, we would say one of the ways in which that is abuse it's it it is an abuse of power and economics. The very I mean that that it even gets produced, that it even gets created and made. That's a sexually abusive industry, if you will. Not to mention the internet. Yeah. So we would say that in many respects, sexual abuse is like in the air that we breathe. In many respects, in ways in which we just really aren't paying attention to it. And so therefore, there's a death of a thousand cuts that takes place both for men and for women long before we're ever really paying that much attention to it, long before it gets close enough, close enough to us for me to think that, oh, this is really what's happening. And again, this is how subtle and how brilliant evil is in its operational style. We talk about then power gradients, that sexual abuse often takes place in emotionally proximal environments. It doesn't necessarily just take place when a person goes to see, uh, you know, sex for hire or just watching it on the internet, but sexual abuse actively with real live human beings often takes place involving those people that we've been close to, those people who have been emotionally connected to us. In this case, in Tara's case, this youth pastor it could be a family member. It could be a neighbor. It could be people that we know. It happened. The vast majority of these of these situations take place. In yeah, settings like you know, that. I mean, we, I, I talked in a past episode about how just just how I brushed up against this for you know through through various places in my childhood where it was um, I, I you know to the point that I I was being groomed uh, mm. by a, a male teacher that I had in seventh grade and and. Um, by the grace of God, I, I got away from it, and 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 it didn't happen. But it was, you know, 
years later, he, the list that the diocese of uh, the you know the church that I that I was a member of um, released a list of all the sexual predators, and he was right there. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and so and and it's that just that person that has authority over you that you know they pick you and they mm-hmm. they make you feel mm-hmm. you know special mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um and then you know try to get you alone and then you know the the the, the thing is unfolding in before you know it right 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 exactly yeah well, you know, in, in, Pepper, you 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 kind of like lead us right into this next thing that we want to talk about, and that is like you know we're, we're you know we can talk about it in the abstract, we talk about it, ideas and so forth, but again, the thing that makes sexual abuse so powerful is because of the role of the body itself. That our bodies, our body's response to sexual abuse is not just what happens to me emotionally. This sense of someone being desired, this sense of, you know, there, there is an embodiment to this, this felt sense of closeness. Like I feel it, like I, when I feel close, I feel it literally in my chest. When I'm in the presence of someone who I know who loves me, whether it's my wife, whether it's you, whether it's Amy, whether it's someone like I, like I have, like I have a physically felt sense of being comforted. Like I, I can relax all the, and so what can happen then is our, our body, when someone is like in the situation that you're describing, when someone is grooming us, there is that felt sense of being special. And that's not just an abstraction. Like I have an embodied reaction to this. Right. The challenge, of course, is that once this starts to happen, especially in Tara's case, that felt sense of longing and desire, the felt sense of... Uh, wonder and and also the good feelings, not just of the closeness, but of the physicality of arousal, right? And the sense of orgasm and all those kinds of things that happen that we enjoy, like legitimately enjoy, then very quickly, in her case in particular, but also with others, very quickly get spliced together with shame, hmm. right? The youth pastor would say to her, now we want to just keep this between us. And of course, in her teenage mind, she didn't. She wasn't aware that he was doing this with others as well. She thought she was the only one. And so there's this sense of being special, but then there's also this sense of like once you find out the, the shame that is literally neurobiologically spliced together with my physical sensation of wonder and well-being. Like, like what do you do with that? How do you make sense of this? And this is where we then become more confused in our story. I, I can't tell my story clearly. I have all this ambivalence isn't even the right word. It's not nearly strong enough. I have all this felt sense of disintegration, all this confusion that's taking place. So I don't tell my story truly. It's not straightforward. It's confused. And then I start to have this sense of, like, I can't trust my body to tell me the right things. Right? If my body feels good at the same time that I'm doing this thing that is so horribly uh, repulsive, mm-hmm. like how do I trust my body for anything? And so there's this disintegration of both my capacity to sense things. Well, if I sense something that is good, how do I know that I can perceive it correctly for what it is? And so I can, in not so many subtle ways, start to curse my own body. And it's a recapitulation of Genesis 3, the curse. 
I curse my own body for enjoying something that I enjoy when I know that it's wrong. And then I find myself, as it turns out, repeating the behavior, not unlike other almost addictive processes, where in which I feel bad, but if I'm with him one more time, the time with him can overcome the confusion and the ambivalence for just that moment. And I exhale once again until 30 minutes go by and I recognize that this is all very shattering and weird and all the things. There's this repetition compulsion that I enter into and I, the cycle just repeats itself over and over again, which then leads to my having images and my enacting in behaviors that are just way off the grid. I don't know what to do with myself. So for many people, uh, not unlike Tara, you know, she went off to college and she was an effective student in high school. She went off to college successful, but she could not continue to contain this. And this is when everything started to break down. She finally went to see a counselor and she discovered in that first counseling work that her embodied and relational being in the world in the way that it had been shattered by this sexual abuse had really shattered her attachment process and led her mind into what for her amounted to like these disorganized states. It's very difficult to make sense of your story, very difficult to know how to fit your body into your story. And then the shame that she carried, once she started to talk about it with a counselor who was the first time that she talked about it with anyone, long before she said it to her family. And the counselor, of course, had the proper, both kind and gentle, but also really serious reaction of this is really wrong. Not wrong just morally, but it was wrong that what was done to you. And this is the first time she's hearing anybody say, you were violated. He violated you. And of course, this rings true in some back room in her soul but now what am I going to do? And of course, then the whole process of getting ready to tell my parents, getting ready to this, that the story then kind of broke in the news and so forth and so on. All the shame that continues to be enhanced as we try to march through the healing process. So the very act of marching through the healing process seems to give the shame attendant a megaphone in which she then felt like, oh, now I'm going to ruin his life and I'm going to ruin my family's life. There's all, all these ways in which what started out as this intimate relationship between two people now involves an entire congregation, involves you know, a news story in the local newspaper. It involves like dozens of people. And how is a 20, 19, 20-year-old expected to carry of all this. Well, this is where I would want to say uh, the good news of the gospel. Uh, I mean, Jesus walks into the room and says, it's for this that I have come. I didn't come just to teach people interesting, novel things about morality. I didn't come to heal people so they just feel better about their lives. We talk about how often in the texts of Scripture, 
God says to all the people that are following him, fear not for I am with you. And, you know, we quickly, I, I quickly interpret that to mean uh, I'm with you and I am, uh, I'm a cosmic badass and I'm going to eliminate all of your enemies. I'm going to cut the path wide and smooth and you're not going to have a problem at all. I'm going to give you Pepper and Amy as friends and your life will be forever like you know, unimaginably beautiful, right? You're, it just like that, That's what it means to be with me. And oddly enough, that's really not what he says. It's his being with me, just being present in that way is enough. He doesn't say, I'll be with you and therefore you will never suffer again. I'll be with you, you'll never have any more problems. I'll be with you, no one will ever mistreat you. I'll be with you, everything will be great. I'll be with you, you'll never lose your son to cancer. I'll be with you, you'll never get T-boned by a car in the intersection and never walk again. I'll be with you and no one will ever sexually mistreat you. His presence began coming into the world naked. And before the resurrection, he left the world naked. And he knows what it means to be physically humiliated, stripped naked, beaten, nailed to a cross, put on public display. For his friends, his family, his enemies to come and gawk. And in that space, we read in our theology about atonement, the at-one-ment that Jesus brings. And we then see how with resurrection, we become his presence for others as he is present and with us in our shattered, broken, traumatized, sexually upended lives. And this began for Tara with her first counselor who was present for her and with her. And she was present in slow and steady manners of kindness. If nothing else, to be sexually abused is to be treated with a, like a cosmic degree of unkindness. And healing begins with someone's simple act of kindness. I can be with you and hear your story, and I'm going to be with you for as long as it takes. And if you have to tell parts of your story every day, all day, for as long as it takes, that's how long it's going to take, and I'm not leaving the room. This slow and steady kindness was what her therapist offered to her. And it offered her what we might consider like embodied rebirth. When Jesus says to Nicodemus, like, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again, unless you start over and go back and visit the reality of your life that has never been seen, soothed, safe, or secure. All that stuff's always come with a price. It's always come with strings attached. It's left you confused. And then with Tara in this horrible way, not to mention what eventually then happened with her, with her husband someone else that she thought she could trust, to have this repeated, this embodied rebirth that she began with her work with her counselor 
slowly allowed her to retell her story differently, not least of which because, was because she began to get a sense of how her body and what it felt was representing what she could trust and wouldn't and, 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 and needed to not trust. As she began her relationship with the man who became her husband, it required a lot of work for her to simply trust his being physically close to her, let alone eventually marrying her, let alone having sex, having children. And so when she got to me, much of what had happened when she was a teenager felt like it was being reenacted. And she came in thinking, like, I thought I had, I thought I was through that. I thought I'd taken care of that. And this is another thing that we can have happen, that we can have these events that take place early in our lives. We might even work through some of them. Other things happen and reactivate that. And we like, was I never healed to begin with? Did I never really do this work? This was one of Tara's questions to me. Did I not really, was the work not complete? To which I would say, absolutely not. No, the work that you did with her was the work that you, that was effective and good and healing. And you've had another traumatic event. And it has landed on old neural networks that very easily remember what it felt like when things were really out of control when you were 15 and 16 and 17. And so for her, we had to re-engage what we learn about neuroplasticity. We're going to re-engage again with her those four S's. What does it mean to be seen, soothed, safe, secure? And it took many months for us to do this. And at the same time, her husband was doing the work that he needed to do once again. We like to talk about how we depend upon neuroplastic changes, neuroplasticity, the capacity for the brain to create new neural networks, even when we feel like our story is so old that there's nothing that can change about it. But the beauty of the work that she did didn't just happen because she did work with me. She eventually moved into one of our confessional communities that we've talked about. Mm. And as we like to say, it's in those communities where we bring the, like, like literally, the mass effect of more than one brain into the room to counterweight shame of the trauma of our sexual mistreatment. And so she found that she was telling her story over a long period of time. She didn't just tell it once with her therapist when she was in college. She was retelling it with me. But when she started to work in the community, she was telling it with an entire choir of voices supporting her. An entire group of people that she could eventually over time begin to take with her in her heart, mind, and whose presence she literally felt in her face, in her chest, and so this group helped, as we like to say, expand her horizon of relational courage. So that from just being with one with me, she could be with many. And they could invite her to put her foot further and further into the water, a relational connection, help her make more sense of her life as it was emerging, even in the face of her trauma. I have patients, uh, Pepper, that I've been working with for 20 years who have taken that long to work from where they began to where they are now to work through some of the most heinous stories I've ever heard committed, 
against human beings. But I want to say that these are people whose lives I admire more than anybody that I know. I'm thinking of two or three of them right now who might think like, like I, I, I am not fit to tie the thongs of their sandals. The work that they have done, accessing the retelling of their story, this long journey that, of course, again, this is what's difficult because we live in a world where we would like to think that the healing of our shame, particularly with sexual trauma, will happen overnight. Well, and like you said earlier, that once you deal with it, you f- you want <laughs> you want it to be done. You know, you feel you like, be I, done. I, didn't I do this work already? And, you know, I think about, you know, having once broken my wrist and having surgery mm-hmm. on it, going through physical therapy, I'm great, right? I had a very slight fall and it shattered and I had to have a plate put in and a whole other thing and go through physical therapy again. But it's that same, if you come back and that same thing is triggered by something else. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, I've, I've uh, recently, just in my own life, I've just been really aware that like, I, I'm like, oh, I, I have lived with the assumption uh, much like we do in the West, I have a figure like, you know, uh, with our, uh, n- notions of modernity and progress that my spiritual growth is about progression. It's about progress. It's about, I should be able to measure my progress over time. That if I look back a year, you know, a year ago or five years ago, that I would say, oh, I'm more patient now than I was then, or I'm better at this, or I've worked through my shame more effectively now. And there's always going to be this way for me to like grade this, like I'm in school. And, you know, what's interesting, number one, is that like the scriptures actually are never explicit about growth in these terms. It never talks about it on a linear track like we Westerners like to talk about progress. It talks about depth. It talks about closeness with Jesus. And I recognize that in many respects, growth is not so much about a linear trajectory as much as it is about an ever-widening circle of space in my life that Jesus takes more and more and more conscious command of. And even though I'm imperfect in that regard, I think of how the way that that happens has everything to do with the ongoing practice of being seen by others in a confessional community. Others who will say, you know, Kurt, no matter how many times we are, no matter how long it takes, like we're not leaving the room. No matter how many times you have to go back to take care of that physical therapy on that broken wrist, if it's a hundred times, like we're not leaving the room, like we're going to do the physical therapy with you. Like we're going to keep doing this. If you show up, like, like you can count on like, we're going to be in the room. Now, if you don't come to the room, like, you, you, you know, if Tara decides she doesn't want to do the work, that's the only thing that's going to keep her from, you know, from growing. But Tara comes into the room and Tara's life is transformed and not because suddenly these, all these memories just evaporate and they, they, and they just go away. But more so that her life is enriched and made more resilient because of her connection to others who she knows are with her. You know, I've, um, I've recently, uh, as I've said to you and Amy, I, I just get a great deal out of the you know, internet TV series The Chosen. Mm-hmm. 
And in the very first uh, season, for those of you who haven't watched it, I would commend it. Uh, you know, but I, and you know, you may or may not find it to be as moving as I found great. it to be. It's great. It's great. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm I'm like I'm I'm like in my fourth time, hmm. fourth or fifth time through, uh, and because I find these some of these moments so poignant. And in the very first episode, just complete, I didn't see it coming. Yeah. It's at the end of the episode. I don't see it coming. I don't want to, you know, for people who haven't seen it, I I, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it, but I, I I might, right? Because I I just want to say that, you know, the the main character of the first episode is Mary of Magdala. And it tracks her journey. And I mean, like, every time I get to the end of this episode where Jesus steps in and says, that's not for you. And then calls her by name. You see, Tara's youth group leader was not calling her by her real name. I don't know what name he had for her, but Tara wasn't it. Because Tara's a real person who's 16 or 17. He was calling her by something else that was being generated in the confusion and distress and disturbance of his own mind. But Tara's real name, when it's called, is called with kindness and it's called with confidence and it's called out and forward and into a world in which she's being loved truly. And of course, this is hard for her to trust because like, look what happens when you trust people that you're supposed to trust. But her therapist, when she was in college, and then hopefully the work that she was doing with me, I think she would say this, and then the work that she's doing in this group help her to tell her story more truly because they're calling her name for what it really is. And this is how we begin to heal our trauma, not just sexual trauma, with all of its embodied distress. We talked about that a couple of episodes ago, by the way, what happens with the body itself and our polyvagal system and our ways of getting unhinged and what it requires for us to be standing, what it requires for, and by standing, not just metaphorically, but physically, having a sense of comfort and confidence, having a sense of staying within that window of tolerance, all those kinds of things require our willingness to let someone call us by our first name, by our true name, by the name that resonates with the thing that we've been called to be loved. And I would want to say that for our listeners today, that, uh, some of us, you know, we, we, we know that uh, the statistics for females, at least in the U.S., are that one out of three women will have experienced some kind of sexual abuse by the time they're 21. This is who we are as people. So if you're a guy, you, you look around the room, and if you're listening to this, and you can imagine, you know, pick three women in your life, one of them is at risk for having had something happen to them. If you're a woman, you look to the woman on your left and you look to the woman on your right and one of the three of you. And that's alarming in and of itself. And so as you're listening with us today, uh, you might find yourself having had memories or emotion or embodied sensations evoked that feel uncomfortable, confusing, that are reawakening old things that perhaps you thought you'd buried effectively but that are now working their way back to the surface. And I want to assure you that if they are, it's because your 
heart is responding to the Holy Spirit who's coming to find you. But this can feel pretty uncomfortable, and it can feel confusing, and it can feel frightening. And so, uh, again, we aren't conducting psychotherapy here, but I, I do have a couple of recommendations. One is if, if you're listening to this and you're feeling, to any degree, some sense of distress, I want you to think about uh, engaging in some exercise soon after or while you're even listening to this. Going for a, you know, uh, a rigorous walk, even running, doing anything to exercise, it would help you to move, to give you a sense that your body has agency, that you can move in a direction that you want it to move, that you have the capacity to regulate what your body will do. Another thing to do would be just even with your eyes open or eyes closed, just standing and then taking several deep breaths, taking your time over a period of about two or three minutes, and then taking a break from that and coming back in about five minutes and doing the same thing. Some of you might also um, have the experience of, in listening to this, that you've, like, you're pretty exhausted listening to this. Some people in their stories that get re-evoked, all those memories, they, they feel like it's like you've had a workout just listening to this. Uh, it might not be a bad idea for you to think about taking a nap, getting some rest. Let your body relax, repose. The third thing, third application would be to, by all means, don't hesitate. Don't waste any time contacting a close friend, perhaps a pastor, perhaps a counselor, to whom you can share your story, to whom you can hear your name called truly. And our hope is that you will hear, you will have heard this episode as one, ultimately, one of hope. You've heard Tara's story, and I want you to know that Tara's story can be all of our stories, in that hope is something that is built, it is constructed, it is something that is created over with, with hard work, and that Jesus is in the business of coming to find us with that in mind. Once again, one last resource that I want to remind us of is Dan Allender's book, Again, the title of that is Healing the Wounded Heart. Wouldn't, of course, expect you to go out and pick it up and read it today because it's a, you know, it's a piece that would take some time to read. But if you're someone who's had this experience or if you're someone who hasn't had this experience at all, I would recommend that if you get the chance to pick up a copy and read it through and it will give you an idea of helpful things to be doing about it. And also for those who've not had this experience, it will give you a greater sense of compassion for those that you may know. And I can, I can tell you, you probably do know someone who's had this experience, even if you're not aware of that. Yeah. That uh, one out of three statistic is pretty devastating. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Kurt, I, um, I, I really appreciate the way that you tackled this subject today. Um, and, you know, just, just knowing the level of sensitivity that, that you carry with you all the time and you bring into this, to this, uh, subject is, um, I don't know, it, it helps me to feel safe in these mm. conversations and I, mm. and I appreciate it. Um, mm. and I love you and, mm. um, love you, man. look forward to more yeah. of these conversations. If you are uh, watching us on YouTube right now, stay tuned because Amy's going to join us for a little post-conversation. And otherwise, we will be back next week. See you next week, brother. You too.
This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simons. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at Being Known Pod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.